The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. I'm Rachel Myers. I'll be reading this morning's scripture passage from the book of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 through 42. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had but was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, Who touched? And his disciples said to him, You see this crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Rachel, and hello, everybody. If I haven't seen you yet in the new year, uh, happy new year to you. And as uh, Jennifer announced, our our January and early February series is um, uh, booting off of uh, several of these wonderful uh, videos uh, that are accessible to anyone who wants them online, and they're, uh, I understand, going to be shown during the Super Bowl and other key times to uh, get a conversation going about who Jesus is, what He's like, and such. And today, uh, as, as we've already been uh, alerted, uh, we're looking at Jesus as a physician. Uh, and uh, in the time of Christ, one of the things that actually 
intrigued people about Jesus, drew people to Jesus, made people want to be around Jesus was his superpower to heal anyone he wanted to heal. He never failed. If he said to somebody, be healed, that person would be healed. Now, already in Mark's gospel leading up to chapter 5, we've, we've seen uh, Jesus healing a paralytic, healing a man who had a withered hand. Uh, there were a bunch of people who were threatened at sea. They were out on a boat, and, and, and a hurricane-like storm started to happen as they're out at sea, and Jesus just spoke to the weather and commanded the weather like, 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 um, like an adult commands a child, you know, sit down and be quiet. You know, he, he says this to the storm, and the storm sat down and got quiet. He's cast demons out, restored people's sanity to them, and now we have two people from very different life situations coming to him desperate, begging for healing. His first response is to a religious leader named Jairus, and Jairus is, uh, is, a, is an official in the synagogue, a ruler, it says, in the synagogue, and he's got a 12-year-old daughter who is dying. The need is urgent. And then there's a woman who has had a bleeding condition for as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. And this woman comes to Jesus in a, in a different way, which we'll unpack here in a few minutes. But situations like that, this raise a lot of questions. If, if I or somebody that I care about is sick, diseased, terminal, chronic, um, is there a guarantee for healing? We know that Jesus can heal, uh, but will He? Well, we know for a fact that He doesn't always heal in the way that we ask Him to. Uh, we got Jacob, for instance, who uh, is left by God with a limp for the rest of his life right before God uh, calls him to become the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then we've got uh, people like Paul who prays to God multiple times about what he calls his thorn in the flesh. It says that three times he pleads with the Lord to remove it from him, and the Lord says, nope, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness, in your weakness. And then, and then there's this transformation that happens in Paul where he even learns to delight in the midst of what he calls weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties because of the power of God resting on him in his weakness. It's already been on our lips this morning. We, 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 we sung uh, the lyrics that, that Jeremy explained to us uh, from, O love that will not let me go. Uh, and that hymn was written in only a few minutes by a 20-year-old man named George Matheson. Uh, Kevin, correct me if I'm getting any of these details wrong, but, but George Matheson had gone blind, and he had been engaged to be married, and his fiancée broke off the engagement uh, because she couldn't envision herself or imagine herself living the rest of her life married to, to a disabled man who was blind. And not long after that, his sister, who became his primary caregiver, got engaged and ended up leaving him as well to, to pursue her marriage. And so he's left alone and ends up writing this wonderful hymn 
that's brought so much encouragement over the years. But did you catch that line? From those conditions, he writes these words, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. This reminds me of of a conversation that um, I had the privilege of listening to uh, with a friend of mine, an older friend who has been diagnosed with an incurable and terminal cancer. It's pancreatic cancer. And uh, somebody in the conversation asked him the question, how is your battle with cancer going? And his answer was, cancer has never been my battle. My battle is with my own heart's response to cancer, which is a, a kind of response, a kind of heart response that I think Jesus as physician is going after in this passage. But before I get into the three uh, what I'll call false beliefs that, that, that this text address, addresses, uh, beliefs that cause many people to deconstruct their faith not in a good way. Um, I'll pose the question first before I get into those false beliefs. If given the choice, would you rather Jesus change your situation or your heart? Which would you prefer? Now, ultimately, Jesus is going to change both for those who, who trust in Him. And ultimate healing is coming in the new heaven and the new earth and complete healing. But in the meantime, if Jesus says, now until the day you die or until the day I return, I will either change your situation or your heart, which will it be you choose? What would your choice be? I think most of us who are accustomed to, to living under the illusion that we are in control of our lives might be tempted to say, I'll just change my situation. We'll worry about my heart later. But Jesus is after something more than what we would ask for. As C.S. Lewis famously says, we're far too easily satisfied. You know, we ask God for too little. We want too little from Him, and these two encounters show that. So, false belief number one is the belief that He does too little. False belief number two is the belief that He asks too much. And then false belief number three is that He does not get us, okay? So, let's start with the first false belief. He does too little. Meaning, and, and, and both of these instances indicate this, Jesus lets us live in desperation much longer than we want to live in desperation. He lets us live in desperation long enough for desperation to become familiar to us. And that's actually part of how He heals our hearts. You know, when we look for healing, there, there are ordinary means that usually we have insurance cards for uh, and co-payments and so on. And then there are miraculous means, and both are, uh, are utilized, both are pursued in the passage in front of us. First, the ordinary means, right? So, um, this should be really compelling and intriguing to us, right? This is a, kind of a healthcare passage. And being in Nashville, which many refer to as the Silicon Valley of healthcare, and as a lookout, a lot of you are, are, are professional healthcare people, as was the case with, with our early service. And so I realize, you know, I got to be careful here. Um, but here's the thing I look out every Sunday and I see 
faces all over this room, all over this sanctuary, of people who have actually been cured uh, through the ordinary healthcare process of, of, of threatening things like cancer and addiction and mental illness and, and other, other maladies, heart disease. So here, here's, here's just a little bit of the wonders of, of, of healthcare technology these days. You can, you can go into a cardiologist's office at 7 a.m. on a Tuesday, and that cardiologist can send a little camera up your wrist and up your arm and into every artery around your heart and discover that you've got 90% blockage in your arteries and push a little button on the other end, and this stent opens up uh, so that you don't have the blockage anymore, takes it out, and then you're home at 5 o'clock for dinner that same night, going about your life, going for a run the next morning. That's how far it's come. But at the same time, I look out every week, and I also see faces of people who have pursued that route like this woman has for 12 years, spent all kinds of resources like this woman has for 12 years, and things have gotten worse instead of better. And who gets the the, the immediate cure and who doesn't? It's very indiscriminate. It's no respecter of persons. Uh, There's no formula to determine who, who gets the healing and who doesn't. But here's this woman whose situation, I think, in many ways resembles the more desperate faces and hearts that enter into this sanctuary who have not experienced the healing that we would desire. Her situation is chronic. It's been 12 years of nonstop bleeding. It says that she suffered much under many physicians. She spent all the money she had on health care. It didn't work. There's been no improvement. Uh, Things have only gotten worse for her. As a pastor who has the privilege of access to to the more vulnerable parts of, of a lot of people's lives, I know this is a lot of your stories. What is a woman to do but cry out to Jesus? But here's here's the thing. It's not just her physical situation that's a source of pain. It's it's everything else that her physical situation introduces into the other parts of her life. Life is passing her by, even as the crowds are, are swarming around her here, and they don't even notice her. She's on the ground. She's not even given a name. Jairus is, is named here. She's not even named and it says that she's had bleeding. Well, if you, had menst- if you were a woman who had menstrual bleeding, the Old Covenant prescription was that you were, you were banned from worship in the temple in- until that monthly process was over, and then you could go back in the temple. So, it was about one week a month, give or take, that, that a woman could not go into the temple to worship. For this woman, it's been 12 solid years. She is been essentially excluded by virtue of her physical situation, which is incredibly oppressive and incredibly damaging not only to her body but to her soul, to her social situation, etc. To be regarded as ceremonially unclean among the people of God, cut off from the temple, sick, poor, all the rest, for 12 solid years, she comes alone And here's the other thing. If a woman could not bear children, which was certainly the case for this woman for at least 12 years, 
It would either prevent the possibility of marriage because no man would, would, would pursue you because having children was everything during those times, or it would end the marriage. The, the, the Pharisee tradition actually encouraged divorce in cases of infertility. And so she is in a desperate, unjust, unfair, broken, ostracized, excluded place. The ordinary means of health care have not worked for her. And so she comes to Jesus kind of as a last resort. But that's enough for Jesus, which is encouraging. But then there's the other situation where we ask for a miracle, which both of them do here. And it says in verse 22 that Jairus, is the ruler of the synagogue, implored Jesus earnestly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so she may be made well and live. Then in verse 35, it says that, that, that while Jesus is tending to the woman's less urgent need, which I'll get to in a minute, his daughter dies. And then verse 39, he arrives too late and people are weeping and wailing, and Jesus asks the strange question, why are you all making commotion and weeping? Well, that's what people do when a little child dies. They make a commotion and weep. And then he kind of casually says, well, she's, she's not dead. She's, she's sleeping. And it says they all laughed and they all mocked him. Not unlike Job's wife, who I think gets poor treatment by history, right? What, how would you respond if you lost 10 children in one day? I mean, I think all of us would, would completely lose it on some level, and, and she does as well. You know, she curse God and die. She, she, she falls into despair and then into cynicism and then into agnosticism of sorts in response to this, this un unsustainable, unlivable condition of of this amount of loss. So one of my favorite folk bands, the Indigo Girls, has this song. They're out of Athens, Georgia, and they have this song that that didn't get a lot of play. It's on one of their earlier records called Strange Fire, and it's a song called Hey Jesus, and it's sort of a prayer. It's sort of a cynic's, a disappointed cynic's prayer to Jesus. And, you know, the story unfolds through the lyrics where where the singer, you know, had come to Jesus in despair, in desperation, and didn't get the answer that she asked for. And so here's some of the lyrics that follow from that. I don't really think it's fair, Jesus. You've got the power to make us all believe in you, and when we call you in our despair, you don't come through. It's easy for you. You've got friends all over the world. You had the whole world waiting for your birth, but now I ain't got nobody. I don't know what my life's worth, because when I die and get up to your doors, I don't even know if you're going to let me in the place. How come I got to die to get a chance to talk with you face to face? Now, that's, that, there's a bit of tragic irony in that last line, because for some of us, death will be the resolution to everything that she talks about ahead of time. In fact, for most of us in, in our despair, death alone will be the ultimate and final and complete solution to our despair. You know, death is not the worst thing that can happen to a person. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, while awaiting his own execution, wrote from prison that death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. 
And of course, Bonhoeffer was in a place, circumstantially and, 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 and in his heart, where, where he'd been developed enough. He'd experienced enough heart-level healing to be able to say those kinds of things and really mean it and really believe it. But death is not the worst thing that can happen to a person. To die in unbelief is the worst thing that can happen to a person. And to live in unbelief is actually worse than dying with faith. To the degree that we insist on imposing our desired outcomes on Jesus as if our desired outcomes are the only right outcomes. To the degree that we insist on that is also the degree to which we are always going to doubt and always be cynical about His love. As soon as we start putting conditions on our worship, that's when we start to doubt Him. That's when we start to grow cynical about the love that He has for us. I mean, think about, you know, parents, when you take in a little child for, you know, vaccinations and immunization shots, you know, because you don't want your kid to get polio. You don't want your kid to get, you know, measles and all the other things. And so you bring your child in, and what does the doctor or the nurse make you do? You have to hold your child down while the child gives you this look of, you've betrayed me. What are you doing? Why are you cooperating with, with this trauma? right? And then the needle comes, and it gets worse. And then there's this blood-curdling scream. And then you walk out feeling, oh, okay, (sighs) no measles, no polio. But the child thinks, no parents. Like, 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 does anybody here for me? We are all like little children. In our suffering, in our disappointments, in our sorrows, it's like we're that, that kid who can't see the full picture being, being held down and held back by a God we think has abandoned us when, when, when actually when He's holding us down and when He's holding us back, He's actually loving us because we can't see the full picture. False belief number one, He does too little. False belief number two, He asks too much. He asks two things of us that we are very unwilling to give. Number one, wait. And number two, trust. So, wait. How, how long do we have to wait? Well, God's answer is as long as I decide, and, and you will know how long after the waiting is over. I'll let you know when that time comes. You know, Tom Petty got it right, right? You, you, you take it on faith. You take it to the heart. The waiting is the hardest part. You know, here's Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and because of that position, he is accustomed to having a fast pass. He's accustomed to being first in line always with requests like this. He has the power. He has the moral standing and authority. He has money. He has all the things. And, of course, the ruler in the temple is going to expect some professional courtesy from Jesus the rabbi, especially since his daughter's situation is acute. It is urgent. is urgent. Whereas the the bleeding woman situation is more chronic and therefore not as urgent. My daughter is dying. She's been bleeding for 12 years. She She can bleed for another hour, right? And then you can tend to her. But my daughter's about to die. And what does Jesus do? He goes to the woman first. 
you know, what we do today when this sort of thing happens, you know, like when they, when they get the sequence of who gets treated first wrong in the emergency room, it's a malpractice suit. And surely people are thinking malpractice of the great physician as the daughter dies. Wait. Well, a lot of good waiting is done for us, Lord. And then trust. You know, one of the first uh, Bible passages that people encouraged me to memorize after I became a Christian at age 19 was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path, which sounds so incredibly great at age 19 when none of this kind of stuff has entered your life yet. Oh, it just sounds so great. Trust in the Lord with all my heart. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. But then you live a little life. You know, how many of you all are watching that um, prequel to the prequel to Yellowstone? I forget what it's called. It's like 18-some year. Anybody watching that? So there's a line in there where, where a mother looks at her, her daughter who still see the world, sees the world with amazement and says, I wish I could still see the world through your eyes. And then the, the daughter kind of laughs and smiles at that. And then the mother continues and says, but someday you're going to see the world through mine. You just need to live a little bit more to see that this is a tragic place that we live in. And into the tragic place, the Lord says, trust me, Isaiah chapter 55, right? Isaiah lived a suffering life. Isaiah never saw the fruit of his ministry in his own lifetime. And it's Isaiah who gave us the words... The Lord's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. The Lord's ways are higher than our ways. We can always trust the Word of the Lord, which will never return empty or void, but will always accomplish what it goes out to do. But for for Jairus, here's where the trust comes in. Right? One of the things Tim Keller said once is the hardest thing to give is in especially for somebody who has all the money, all the power, all the resources, all the advantage, all the education, all the opportunity, all the networks. Jairus is so used to winning that it requires a crisis to awaken him to how deep his need is. Here's the message, here's the posture of Jesus toward Brentwood, Bellmead, Green Hills types. You live under the illusion of control. You've never been in control. You will never be able to purchase control. You will never be able to shield yourself from the lack of control. Ever. And there's going to come a time where I'm going to need to teach you that. And it's going to feel like a sword coming at you, but I assure you it's a scalpel. It's going to feel like violence, but I assure you it's surgery for the deeper need of healing that everyone has. It takes a crisis for gyrus types to whom Jesus would say, I am deeply moved. Of course I am by the pain and the desperation that you are encountering, nobody should have to bury a child. Nobody. That's not how the world is meant to work. So I'm with you in this. 
I'm for you in this, but I also must remain unmoved by your urgency and the cynicism of your friends about how I run things. I have to remain unmoved and objective on these things because I'm after something even more than a resuscitation. That's all you're asking for. You're not asking for resurrection. You're asking for a resuscitation. You're asking for the healing of a an acute need, I'm after an eternal type of cure. This is as much about your heart, Jairus, as it is about your daughter's life. Stay with me. Trust me, son. And then Jairus, who's so used to winning, turns to the woman. Jesus turns to the woman instead. She's so used to losing after bleeding all these years and all the ripple effect of that. For as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive, she's been bleeding. You know, Jairus' crisis has been her norm for so long. This nameless persona non grata, or as, as Hitler would, would have called her, useless eater. Here she is, desperate. Here's what one of the commentaries says. I'll just paraphrase it to keep it brief. Commentary says, Jairus is a male in a society where men have all the power. She is a woman. Jairus is a synagogue ruler. She is ceremonially unclean and hasn't been allowed to worship for 12 years. Jairus is rich. She is absolutely poor after spending everything to try to get better. Jairus is at the very top of the social food chain. She is at the very bottom. Yet Jesus the physician turns to the woman with zero power, zero social and economic capital, and gives her his full attention and treats her as if there's nothing else in the world but her. He turns to a woman with zero status and power and makes a male, civil, and religious leader wait in the moment of his greatest need. The greatest need for a habitual winner is to lose. I say that with trembling because I I am speaking right now to a room filled with habitual winners, telling you that your greatest need is to lose. Because if that time never comes where you lose, you will lose the thing that is most essential for your healing. And that is to be in a posture like my cancer-ridden friend, where you would say, my fight is not with my situation. My fight is with my heart's response to my situation. And to get to that place where the Apostle Paul was from prison saying, I've learned the secret of contentment while living in want, but I've also learned the secret of contentment while living in plenty. Contentment is a secret in both situations, whether you're Jairus or this woman. The greatest need for a winner is to lose, and the greatest need for a, for a, a chronic loser is to win. And so Jesus tends to her first in spite of what the optics look like, in spite of potential malpractice suits, he goes for her heart and for her dignity, for the restoration of the dignity that she'd never lost, but she had lost sight of because of her situation. Oh, I'll get to Jairus. I'll get to the daughter. I'm going to give Jairus more than what Jairus asked for. False belief number three, he doesn't get us. You'll just... Revisit again that lyric from the Indigo Girls. 
where they say, I don't really think it's fair. You got the power to make us all believe in you. When, you, when we call you in our despair, you don't come through. It's easy for you. You've got friends all over the world. You had the whole world waiting for your birth, but now I ain't got nobody. Is it easy for Jesus? Or did Jesus make certain that it wouldn't be easy for Jesus so that it could become glorious for us? The woman touches the hem of Jesus' garment, and at that very place where her suffering stops, she stops bleeding, at that very place where her suffering stops, Jesus' suffering on her behalf begins. Isaiah 53, 6, or 53, 5 and 6 reminds us that by His wounds we are healed. Jesus says in verse 30, who touched me? And everybody's like, what do you mean? It's like you're watching a, a football game and, and, and you know, the, the defense has a hard time pulling down the running back, and so the entire defense piles on the running back until they finally knock him to the ground. And you've got like both teams piled on top of the running back, and the running back's like, who touched me? It's the same. You've got this massive crowd, and people are like, what do you mean who touched you? Everybody's touching you. He's like, no, no, no. Someone just got healed because I felt power go out of me. And when power goes out of me, it goes into someone else. When I am diminished, somebody else is elevated. When I bleed, somebody else stops bleeding. When I'm wounded, somebody else is healed. When I am weakened, somebody else is empowered. And that's what happened. Don't dare think it's easy for Him. Every blessing that's ever come into your life and mine has required a power outage for Jesus Christ which was, of course, only a foreshadowing of what would happen on the cross. You know, in Luke chapter 4, you know, this is this whole famous place where Jesus says, you know, no prophet has honor in his own hometown. He's, he's a little younger. He's in Nazareth, and they're mocking him. They're making fun of him. And, and, and he says to them, surely you will one day quote to me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. And then if we go ten chapters to the right of this one, that's precisely what happens. When Jesus is on the cross, the mockers say to Him, you saved others, but you can't save yourself. Come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Physician, heal thyself. And Jesus' answer to the woman who said, physician, heal me, was yes. To Jairus, Jesus heal my daughter, his answer was, I'm going to give you something better. You're going to have to go through something really hard to get there, but, but I'm going to do something better, and it's going to happen today. But when, when they said, heal thyself, he said, no, I can't, and therefore I won't, because the power has to go out of me. I have to share this woman's situation her economic poverty, her social rejection, her humiliation, her desperation, her loss of blood. I have to share this girl's experience of death. I have to share your situation. Power has to go out from me in order for it to transfer to you. But I also have to take on your contamination 
Any touch. If you touched a bleeding person, if you touched a dead person, both things are happening here. You became unfit for the temple. You became ceremonially unclean. All of a sudden, if, if one clean person touches a contaminated person, both of them are now contaminated. But with Jesus, it's the opposite. Jesus comes to a contaminated person, touches the contaminated person. They become clean. He takes on the contamination. It's a, it's a picture, a foreshadowing of the cross, and then he resuscitates the girl. He does not save her life, by the way. And there's no such thing as a healthcare professional or a healthcare procedure or a hospital that has ever saved someone's life. You've only prolonged it. This little girl and this woman are both buried right now awaiting the thing that resuscitation signifies, and that's resurrection after which there is no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. Bid our anxious fears goodbye. He says to her, arise, which is the foreshadowing of his own resurrection on the third day where he rises from the dead, the first Easter Sunday, which becomes, as the Bible says, the first fruits of all who fall asleep. Same word, asleep. You're not dead. You're sleeping in Christ. You have not been buried, dead Christian. You have been planted There's a difference between being buried and planted. You bury a rock, you never see it again. You bury a seed, it becomes a forest. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. So don't ever again pray, Lord, if it's your will, would you please heal this Christian person? Only pray, Lord, according to your will. Whether in this life and the life to come or whether only in the life to come, heal this person according to your will. And there's a promise that he will. 100%. What's our role in this? It's the same today for us as it was for them back then. Do not fear, only believe. If you don't believe in Jesus, I have no hope to offer you. I hate to say that, but I have to say that. If you don't hope and believe in Jesus, I have no hope to offer you. But with Jesus, even if He's your last ditch, even after you've spent and tried everything else, to find a solution to the situation you're trying to dig yourself out of, even if he's your last resort as he was for the bleeding woman. That's plenty. <laughs> because he loves to restore dignity and he loves to give newness of life. Let us pray. Lord, I'm mindful of, of a suffering uh, member, church member in our midst who during the pandemic went through the most tragic year of his life, and during that season he was invited to lead the congregation in the pastoral prayer. And he from that place prayed, Lord, heal our situation, but not without the healing of our hearts. Father, heal our hearts. Reaffirm and restore our our dignity. Reassure us that everything sad will come untrue as Tolkien has written. We are grateful for this bread and this cup that strengthen us in hope. As you, as you touch us even now with your body and your blood, as you touched the dead girl and as you touched the bleeding woman to heal them, now you touch us. At the very entry point of our bodies, our own lips, you touch us. Heal us as you do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.